uh, two different diets, you're going to go paleo for a week versus water fasting for a week. Water fasting for a week is a much riskier intervention, dietary intervention than say like go, going paleo or vegan or keto or whatever. Welcome to the Tomination Time podcast. I normally stream diet and fitness on Twitch with my waifu Helen. These podcasts will be edited portions of the stream. We'll go over diet, fitness, motivation, ergonomics, and more. Don't forget to follow us on twitch.tv slash Tomination Time and leave your notifications on for when we go live. Jason White says, what do you think about water fasting? I'm seeing a lot of videos and articles. <laughs> Matt Taco, thank you for the videos. We fixed the thing. Well, uh, yeah, we fixed the thing. Um, okay, so let me start over on that. Jason White says, what do you think about water fasting? I'm seeing a lot of videos and articles that say because of autophagy, you won't have loose skin if you lose a lot of weight with water fasting. Also, apparently it's healthy too. Only water, no food intake for like 30 days. So um, a lot of things to break down and let me explain a couple of things. So what is water fasting? It's basically a, um, for lack of a better term, because there's a lot of different ways to look at it, a dietary strategy where you basically only consume water for days or weeks and what each person does is up to them um it is not complete bullshit because some people might hear that and be like thinking to themselves you only consume water you're going to die don't you know the human body's gonna die in a day if you only have food but that's actually not true we can actually survive many days or weeks with zero food is it a good strategy or a good idea i'm gonna get into that in a second but I'm going to kind of define what these terms are because um, there's a lot of misconceptions about water fasting, but also a lot of things are overblown, such as the benefits to autophagy. So autophagy, if you guys don't know what that is, it's basically this is a normal process that happens in the body where our body kind of recycles and reconsumes certain problematic or dead cells and then kind of just, you know, it kind of, it's kind of like clearing out the trash. That's a simple way to put autophagy. And um, <clears throat> autophagy is getting a lot of sexy press these days. Uh, and here's my opinion on this. Um, as with most health and fitness fads and exciting new science that comes out, um, there's a couple of things to pay attention to. One is uh, watch out for the people who sound very uh, like they basically fall in the category of alarmism. Like this one thing that everybody's doing is slowly killing you. And if you do it, too, you're going to be dead. So don't do the don't do the thing that's killing every don't do it don't be like them you be like us the smart people so that's like a common alarmism uh type way of talking there's no nuance it's either this black and white our tribe versus their tribe and i tend to stay away from those people because they usually they're usually full of shit um the better resources are people who are a little bit more nuanced and they kind of explain under certain contexts there's this kind of makes sense this doesn't and so the other thing to think about when it comes to health and fitness and like the sexiest latest greatest things is can an everyday human with like who's under like normal, relatively normal healthy conditions, can they actually make a significant impact on whatever this mechanism or new health thing is by changing X, Y, Z? So the concept here for autophagy, the question is, can we as an everyday human actually make a meaningful impact on our body's ability to uh, go through autophagy and actually like notice it? Like, can we actually do that? And the answer is we don't know. We don't know at this point. And my guess is we actually, there is no way we can actually change it. But um, there was a really good long podcast with Dr. Rhonda Patrick, where she was interviewing. Um, I'll post a link to this in the chat. Um, Dr. Guido Croemer on autophagy. He is a uh, French scientist and you can see his name here. Guido Cromer and uh, basically just look up Rhonda Patrick um, autophagy and you'll see it. He is an autophagy scientist, like a, a lead autophagy scientist in Paris. Um, he is extremely boring to listen to. He's a legit scientist. I say that because, you know, kind of as a joke, but because he doesn't have to talk to people. He talks to rats. And um, if you listen to that podcast uh, about autophagy, he basically he basically straight up says, we don't know how much applies to humans. We have very good rat research. We have very good research on what happens with rats and fasting. And it does seem like it's a beneficial thing, but it is, we cannot extrapolate that and say it's guaranteed to work for humans. We know this is a good decision for all humans to do. We can't anyone who don't goes that far. I think they're full of shit, but if you frame it with some nuance, like, well, hypothetically, this should work. 
Hypothetically, we should give it a shot. I think that's safe to say. I think that's worth trying. Um, but do keep in mind, so many of these different processes in the body, like we can't actually make a meaningful impact. Keep in mind, the human body is very, very complex and we have so many different um, so many different feedback loops going on and tightly controlled mechanisms that we, we can't make a huge impact and really shift things one way or the other. And so like another, I'm trying to think of another example because I, I just came across this uh, recently the other day, but, um, it was a really good one about like pharmaceutical, like only pharmaceutical intervention can actually make a big difference on this, but it, because I'm drawing a blank on that, let me, uh, go with a different example, like intracellular, extracellular, uh, hydration, right? Hydrating the cells versus hydrating outside the cells. Oh man, we gotta bros. We gotta like hydrate inside the cells to look more swollen and this and that. Look, hydration, intracellular, extracellular, like the the amount of um, H2O that is inside your cells and outside your cells, an extremely tightly controlled um, uh, feedback system, okay? We have imbalances in our hydration status, like a permanent imbalance, if there's something seriously wrong with us, which will usually result in some, like, I mean, if you're in a, a, a state of pathology, like you are uh, type 2 diabetic and you have, like, failing kidneys or something like that, okay, fine. The, the same rules don't apply to you. You may have different hydration status. But for someone who is um, a normal, healthy individual, being able to manipulate intracellular, extracellular uh, hydration is pretty much to, to have some sort of meaningful impact out of our control. Unless you do something stupid, like you drink a can of salt, which please don't do that. <laughs> if you drink a can of salt, that is going to most likely lead to some very bad effects. So don't drink salt, guys. Don't drink like a bottle of salt. Now, um, back to the original question from Jason White. Um, from what I've, so like from that long, uh, honestly pretty dry autophagy podcast from a leading autophagy researcher, he basically says that we don't know if this applies to humans or if we can control it, but it's interesting and we should try researching it. And that's often real science. Real science is about that, which is just like, Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't in some cases. We'll find out. We got to do more research. Um, charlatans will often jump on this and say, this is the one true way to do fasting in order to maximize autophagy, to maximize health. Does it maximize health? Is there a bad thing to it? We don't know. Just because something's good doesn't mean we should do more of it, right? Um, food, for example, we need food to live. Food is pleasurable. I enjoy eating it. Why shouldn't I just eat to my heart's content and eat and eat and eat, eat more and more, right? Obviously, we know there's there's bad things about eating way too much. So um, my point is, there's a lot of question marks about autophagy and if we should even pursue it or care about it. Um, that being said, I'm a huge proponent of people doing self-experimentation with relatively safe, low-risk interventions, such as, for example, if you have really weird, non-specific symptoms that a doctor can't figure out, like you have... Um, brain fog or you're just feeling fatigued or something like that and they can't figure it out um very simple interventions like elimination diets like cut out something from your diet for a couple of days or a couple of weeks that's really low risk and i think that's worth experimenting for yourself um especially if there is a hypothetical mechanism that might make sense as to why you are having these symptoms so uh, all that being said if you want to try something that might impact your autophagy status, by all means, go for it as long as it's relatively safe and low risk. However, now we're getting to the water fasting part. Is the water fasting stuff low risk? In my opinion, no. Out of all the dietary strategies, water fasting is probably the highest risk in terms of things possibly going wrong. I do recommend working with some sort of medical professional to at least get an okay from them that your risk for something bad happening, like going hypoglycemic, if you're, you know, for example, if you have diabetes of some kind and you go hypoglycemic, um, that's more of a risk for that type of population if you have underlying conditions. Most humans could probably do water fasting for a couple of days or even a week with zero issues. However, compared to like, let's just say uh, two different diets, you're going to go paleo for a week versus water fasting for a week. Water fasting for a week is a much riskier intervention, dietary intervention than say like go, going paleo or vegan or keto or whatever. So, uh, well, I shouldn't say keto because actually keto, if you're type one diabetic, keto could have issues, but uh, we'll leave keto out. So like just like paleo or um, or vegan or something like that. You do that for a week, the risk, the acute risk is super low, but like water fasting, there is a risk. That being said, um, it's interesting and uh, some people might want to consider it. So who do I think actually might be a good consider uh, a good candidate for water fasting? Now, again, 
<laughs> for this particular dietary strategy, I do recommend that you check with a doctor that you get some sort of okay about this, that you don't, your, one of your underlying conditions isn't going to cause problems if you're in a long extended fasting state. However, I do want to say also that a lot of doctors are not familiar with water fasting. So if you get the sense that your water, your, your doctor is just doesn't really care about listening to you. He's just like, eh, fuck it. No, I'm going to do the safe route so I don't get sued and just say, don't ever do anything ever, ever. So if you feel like you have one of those doctors who just doesn't care to listen, then sure, you can shop around and try to find some other doctor that might be more familiar with water fasting and they might sign off on it. But anyway, all that being said, who do I think would actually be a good candidate for water fasting? Um, morbidly obese, sedentary people, because you should not be doing intense exercise. If you're water fasting, you should be just chilling. Um, if you're type 2 diabetic or insulin resistant and or you have other random, like, I mean, not random, uh, other chronic inflammatory diseases that doctors can't figure out, I think all of those people fall under the category of probably a good candidate for water fasting or even um, keto, a keto diet or something like that to try it out, to see how you feel. So what to expect on a water fast? You shouldn't be, you, again, you should not be doing intense exercise. At most, just a little bit of light walking. You don't push yourself hard if you're on a water fast. First couple of days will be hell as your body gets used to trying to uh, adapt to fasting. And then after that, it's going to be okay for a while. Your body will be res uh, re relying on uh, fat stores for your fuel. Uh, there is the concern for micronutrient deficiency, which again, that's good. That's beyond my pay grade about uh, experience and research into water fasting. I have not done that much research in the water fasting. I've only done a little bit for my own sake because long story short, I have ankylosing spondylitis, autoimmune disease of the spine. And I tried out water fasting, you know, many years ago, I made it to day three and my stomach was like, had this, this extreme burning sensation that I could not, I tapped out. I feel like I have a pretty good, um, threshold for pain and discomfort, but I tapped out with that, um, that like intense burning sensation. I could not sleep. I couldn't handle it. So I had a smoothie and I, I, I got out of it. But anyway, um, so, so for water fasting, um, if you are in a morbidly obese sedentary person, you would probably benefit from this kickstart of a lifestyle change. Now, keep in mind, water fasting is obviously not sustainable because if you water fast for years, again, the same thing's going to happen where you're going to have a bad time. So please, Please don't water fast for years. Um, now, if you are like, let's say you weigh like 300, 400, 500 pounds and you want to start and kickstart this. Yes, water fasting might be a good idea because you're going to burn a lot of fat and it's going to come off. Um, do keep in mind, though, that in the first couple of days of water fasting, you're going to drop multiple pounds from food and water weight, perhaps three pounds, five pounds, 10 pounds, where um, that food and water weight just plummets. And then you start losing at a steady rate of your fat. Fat loss starts to come down at a steady rate. But once you go off of water fasting, this is important. When you go off of water fasting back to a normal diet, you are going to put on three, five or 10 pounds again from food, water weight, carb storage, all coming back up. So it's important to not beat yourself up, to mentally be prepared for that. Because I think a huge issue with yo-yo dieting or any kind of yo-yoing on the scale is people don't know what to expect. And then when they lose the weight, they feel so good on like a keto diet, same thing, pretty much same thing. And then when they go back on a keto diet or go back on a normal diet with carbs in it, their carb storage and water storage increases and they think they fucked up. They think they got fat and they didn't. That's the key thing. Don't think that you fucked up on that. So um, Jason White, that's my opinion on it. Um, if you notice you feel better on water fasting, it, is it the autophagy? It could be, right? Autophagy could be playing a role. Uh, I'm more of the opinion that if someone is feeling better on a water fast, it could be multiple things going on, such as they were insulin resistant before because they basically were <clears throat> their blood sugar was chronically elevated and they felt like because like if your blood sugar is chronically elevated, you probably feel like shit. And uh, by eliminating carbs and forcing your body to rely on fat stores, that's going to get your give your body a chance to kind of basically get the system back in check where your blood sugar is going to come back down. Your insulin resistance will go down. Um, you might feel way better from blood sugar normalizing. It could also be that you, um, you were eating something that was irritating you, causing inflammation, causing, you know, gut inflammation. And because of that, you have done a water fast. You've eliminated that. And so perhaps you eliminate that source and now you feel better for that reason. My point is, it may be autophagy. It may be a bunch of other things. There's many things going on in that system when you do a water fast. It's a very much shotgun approach to changing your health because uh, you're losing weight. You're changing your blood sugar. You're changing insulin resistance. You're um, 
eliminating foods that could cause irritation, you may be increasing autophagy. Again, I don't know. I don't think anyone has a solid answer on if that works in humans or not. Humans are similar to rats, but we're also different too. So there are differences. I, I have a list somewhere of, um, I have a list of, uh, differences between humans and rats that I, I don't have it on me, but, um, so, <clears throat> Uh, is it going to help with the loose skin? I've heard anecdotally that, yes, people who water fast, um, it helps the loose skin. I, I can't say. I really don't know. Uh, I just heard anecdotes. Anecdotes are stories. There could be bias. There could be other things. It's not a proper scientific measure, but it is it's somewhere. It's something to start with to experiment <clears throat> again. Uh, water fasting is a higher risk dietary intervention. So, again, I, I want to emphasize this. Uh, do check with your doctor, especially if you have underlying conditions that might uh, become much worse if you go into a water fast. <clears throat> so Jason White says he asks about this question because every person I saw on YouTube that did a major weight loss, 100 plus pounds, don't end up having loose skin. So it's either a big coincidence or water fasting has some effect on it. Um, I, I would be cautious also on taking your information from uh, YouTube I, for a lot of reasons. There's the obvious reasons of like, duh, why would you listen to YouTube? But uh, YouTube and anecdotes is interesting to generate hypotheses. It's not um, we should be cautious to say, like, we have learned that the science has said autophagy increases reliably during water fasting because of a... Because I saw it on YouTube somewhere and someone saw that. And I saw like five YouTube videos that showed that increase. So that's that's data, right? That's that's five data points, isn't it? Five out of five data points that I read, right? So it, be cautious about that. But that being said, again, I think it's okay to think about mechanisms and generate a hypothesis and to do self-experimentation for low risk, low risk things such as simple dietary interventions. I don't consider water fasting to be low risk. I need to emphasize that over and over. But I, about the loose skin thing, I wanna show you this. Like there are plenty, you may not, like if you know where to look for it, you can find stuff about loose skin. Look, look at this guy. Uh, this is a community member. Um, I'm gonna show this on screen. This is Justin. You can find him on uh, on um, Instagram, Justin fat to fit This is an old picture from a while ago. Uh, he dropped. 100 plus pounds. Actually, this is not a good picture. Let me find a better one. Um, hold on. I have a, a new, more recent one that shows 100 pounds loss. So here we go. <clears throat> Same guy, Justin. Uh, Justin fat to fit. 100 plus pounds down. Loose skin? Nope. What did he do? He did um, CrossFit twice a day, basically weightlifting and cardio plus severe calorie deficit. When I say severe calorie deficit, I mean he was eating like 1,600 calories somewhere on that. I can't remember if it's 15 or 2,000. But for doing CrossFit twice a day, that was an extreme deficit. Um, uh, and in the case of um, Justin, by the way, he has extremely high willpower. I know him because he's a part. He's a part of the community. Uh, and he was he's able to push himself much harder than most humans. And I warned him many times, dude, be careful. Like you're pushing really hard, pushing really, really hard. But he was working with coaches and he was working with a nutritional coach, too. So he was in good hands. He had the willpower and he was the kind of guy who could do this. He did 100 pounds in a year or less. And so is there loose skin? Nope, I don't see loose skin. Now, a couple of my take on the loose skin part is this. Number one, don't forget about pictures. He is sucking it in, right? Like he admits this, like this is for, for progress pictures. We all do this. We try to make the the, the difference look as dramatic as possible. Uh, the second thing is he is lean, but he's not ultra lean. OK, he is still probably 15 ish percent body fat, maybe 12 percent, maybe 20 percent. The point is, he's not 8 percent. Uh, he's not 8 percent shredded with uh, abs visible. I mean, um, in this picture, too. Right. Like, although he has dropped in this picture, 290 pounds to 280 or uh, 218, that's about 70 pounds. He uh, still is like 20 plus percent body fat. There's no loose skin also because it could be genetics. It could be that he hasn't lost enough for it to be visible. So there's a lot of different variables when it comes to loose skin. And I don't think um, I think it's plausible that doing something like water fasting with uh, in the possibility of increased autophagy minimizing the amount of, of loose skin. I have never seen any good science on this because this is such a case case report type of thing and anecdotal thing. Uh, the point is, I think if you want to um, if you want to experiment with it, go for it. Let me know how it goes. But in terms of loose skin, I, I suspect genetics plays a huge role. I suspect um, 
the uh, actual absolute value of body fat percentage matters. What I mean is if you drop 100 pounds, I don't think that matters so much unless you put it in context. So like someone dropping from 500 pounds to 400 pounds, probably not going to see loose skin because as such, relatively speaking, that's only 20% of your body weight versus if you drop from, let's say, um, 250 to 150 and you get to like 8% body fat where you can see ab veins or at least you should see ab veins but then instead you see like the loose skin kind of just folding over then that's a different story um in that person the loose skin might start to show because on a absolute scale he's getting actually pretty lean so um that's kind of my take on all of this stuff when it comes to um body fat percentage in, in YouTubers and stuff. So like actually touch more on the YouTubers. Um, it, it could be self-selection bias that the algorithm is showing the best YouTube videos, the most amazing transformations, zero loose skin. Oh my God, this person's so amazing. They did the best job editing because don't forget editing happens. Um, and they don't show the follow-ups because you don't like, you don't know what's happening, right? Like what's happening um, weeks and months afterward. I remember the first YouTuber I saw do a water fast um he was this uh, uh, British guy. I think he was English. And um, same thing. He was like 350 pounds. Uh, he dropped like, I don't know, like 50, 100 pounds, something like that. He, he dropped a lot of pounds doing water fasting. Um, six months to a year later is when I found his video and I was searching his VODs and his Instagram. I could not find follow-ups. Does that mean he fucked up or something is not as good as it seems? Possibly. But to me, it's a slight question um, and a little bit of a concern when I don't see follow-ups to see how they're doing later on. There could be a lot of other factors. It could be, um, they screwed up for other reasons. They got really stressed in their life and they fell back to old eating habits. And so they regain the weight. They feel ashamed. They don't want to show up. That's fine. I'm not judging the person. I'm just saying, um, YouTube videos tend to give you a single snapshot and that's all you see. You, it's hard to see. You may get some impression of what happened before, but you don't, you, you don't always get the impression of what happens after. And whether or not they really had loose skin or whether or not they really kept the weight off or whatever, right? There's a lot of other question marks there. It's interesting. It's interesting to see people on YouTube and social media talk about different dietary strategies. I think it's interesting if you want to do some self-experimentation, especially because the science is not there yet to definitively say this is the number one strategy to, re to stop loose skin. We don't have that kind of information. Um, I would say it's a red flag if someone claims they do. Um, I, I think... The importance of nuance and avoiding alarmism is very important to decipher like who's full of BS and who's not. Again, the autophagy stuff, go check out Rhonda Patrick's. I'll, I'll post another link to this. Um, you want to see a real scientific, um, real scientific study on this stuff or scientific discussion on autophagy. Go uh, listen to that podcast down here because, uh, man, that is some science heavy really boring, boring stuff. And this is what real science sounds like. Uh, you know, drink some coffee and prepare your brain because it's not an easy, easily digestible discussion. But then you'll hear the nuance from one of the lead researchers in autophagy. If anyone's trying to sell, sell it, it would be him. But he straight up says, I think at least once or twice in that podcast, like, yeah, we're not really sure about humans. Yeah, we're not really sure. Like, he's just like, yeah, like he talks about all these great benefits in rats. But he, he distinctly says, Along the lines of, it, yeah, it doesn't happen. Uh, yeah, it doesn't happen in humans. Or we, we don't know. Sorry, we shouldn't. Not it doesn't happen. We don't know if it happens in humans the same way. So, anyway, so uh, all right. Um, Kanga says surgery's number one strategy is stop loose skin. That is true, actually. Uh, in some cases. Uh, you may not be able to control the loose skin at the end of the day, and you might have to go with skin surgery. Uh, my general suggestions for um, for avoiding loose skin is, number one, lose more weight than you think you need to. Because sometimes it looks like loose skin, but it's actually just loose fat hanging, and you just got to keep, uh, keep burning through all the fat. You got to keep dieting down. You'll eventually burn through all the fat, and then it'll, the skin will tighten up, which is the second point. Give yourself a break and give yourself more time than you think you need for that loose skin to tighten up. Give yourself a few years after you've gotten to your goal weight, maybe a little bit past it. Uh, also, I would build weight. I would build muscle along the way. I would be weightlifting. I would be trying to get stronger. Obviously, if you weighed 600 pounds before, I don't care how much abs you develop, you're not going to get enough abs to fill out 600 pounds afterward. So loose skin may be inevitable in some cases. Obviously, some other things like take care of your skin, um, general skincare routines, don't abuse your skin, eat a healthy, nutritious diet. Um, I don't know if there's any science to back this up. So I'm saying this with a speculative thought that hypothetically, it kind of makes sense that you supply your uh, body with 
collagen and vitamin C because that's useful for skin synthesis all the way down as you're dieting. This is purely speculation. I'm not basing this off any science that I saw, but consuming extra vitamin C and collagen is a harm is pretty harmless. I can't think of a single reason why an extra 20 to 40 grams of collagen and extra like couple hundred milligrams of vitamin C can be bad in any way, unless obviously you react poorly to it and you feel like shit after you take it. But those are the things that I would take. I, I would consider. Core Pookie asks if I if I was lifting a lot prior to COVID, he had 175 bench, 275 squat, 225 pound, I'm guessing these are all pounds, uh, deadlift. Haven't touched the weights in like three months. How light should I go in my first few workouts? I would consider what's practical. I would consider cutting things down um, to always go lighter than you think you need to and just add weight during the workout or on the next workout to play it safe. Because you don't want to straight go back into your old 1RMs and train like that because uh, that's, a, that's a huge risk for injury. So what I say was practical, I would say aim for perhaps starting at 50% of that 1RM, maybe a little bit lighter. So at a 175 bench, it's kind of practical to start at 135 because that's a plate on each side, but that's still might be a bit heavy. So I would start with the bar, do some warm-ups with that. Maybe go up to 95 for your first working set because that's kind of a convenient number. See how that feels with doing 95 for a set or two. And then um, if you feel strong enough, you can add on 10 pounds, 10 pounds, 10 pounds, right? And try to dial it in. Same with like deadlift. Okay, deadlift 225, I'd probably start at 135. 135 pound deadlifts is um, a fairly easy place to start in terms of like uh, having a plate on each side, the bar height will be at the right place. And as you um, lift, it's, you're starting it around the right plate, plate uh, place for mid shin. Squat, maybe start at 135, because 135 is a nice uh, number to start with for squats. Obviously, I'd warm up with the bar. Potato says, what does back off stand for? So he's referring to what you see down there in the, in the bottom corner where I list my workout for the day. Uh, back off sets is, this is a, a style of training that usually intermediate or advanced people would use. So beginners, if you're following like strong lifts or frax GSLP or um, starting strength, something like that, is usually linear progression. So like if you're doing like five by five squats, it's five sets, five reps, all the same weight. And then um, if you complete that, you progress, right? Progression is very important. So if, and if you have some sort of uh, workout program, I highly recommend you make sure the progression is there to move up in weight and get stronger. That being said, um, that's linear progression. We just add five pounds, add five pounds, add five pounds like every workout. Now, um, you eventually hit a wall. You can't do five pounds forever. Things start to plateau, and then you have to start doing other training modalities to keep moving forward. One way to do this is through a concept of... Um, something like periodization or uh, back offset. So you have like a top set and a back offset. So what you can see down there is I have my squat set. My top set is a set of three reps where I'm gonna go a bit heavier. Um, and then I have the back offsets where um, I'm going to lower the weight a little bit. So it's a little bit lighter, but I can do more volume there. And so I have that one set. So I'm still priming myself to do heavy, uh, to do um, some heavy lifting. But then I still, I don't wanna, I can't lift heavy all the time because then I can't generate a lot of volume. Cause I do like a set of three, right? Set of three, that's not a lot of reps. And I can do three sets of three or six sets of three. That's kind of annoying to do that many sets. Or I could reduce total sets, reduce the weight and just add in a little bit more reps. It's a little bit more time efficient um, and a little bit easier on the body. Cause again, I don't be training at one RM intensity all the time. So back off sets is a method of generating more volume whilst doing a, doing a top set. Again, there's so many different ways that you can train once you hit intermediate advanced, to try to push up your, um, in your, your training intensity and your, uh, the load that you're working on the how how big the load is but um back offsets is one of the ways to do that i do recommend them if you're trying to like uh maintain strength or you're trying to um still lift in heavy heavy rep ranges you can do a set but um back offs are nice to do sometimes as well okay i am being helped by my coach coach brandon exclamation mark brandon um his name is um he is uh, on Instagram. He's in Australia. Powerlifting coach. A huge, huge fan of him. I really like his uh, training style. And you can see his uh, Instagram here. Coach Bundun. Uh, Instagram.com slash co at Coach Bundun. So uh, he fixed. I, I say I sing his praises all the time because seriously, two physical therapists work with them for three months. They couldn't solve my QL pain at all. Five minutes with Coach Bundun. He spotted my issue. My squat and deadlift said, there's your problem. Q to Atomy, again, five minutes, 
and then uh, QL Pain was gone. So I'm following his training for powerlifting, trying to peak in September. Kensor says, I work at shifts. So one week I wake up at 5 a.m. and work until 2.30 p.m. Next week I work from 2.30 p.m. to 11 p.m. This messes up my sleep schedule and eating times. Yep, absolutely. Uh, any tips on keeping them in check, so to speak? So I'll point you to a good resource. His name is Sachin Panda. Uh, he has a book called The Circadian Code, I think. I have not read the book. I have heard some of his stuff. Um, Sachin Panda is basically a... Um, there's his name right there. He is a uh, circadian rhythm researcher. He's done a lot of really good rat studies. Obviously, they're not humans, but they're, they've been really well done, uh, really well designed rat studies to where he basically showed a lot of benefits to things like intermittent fasting and how do you do some practical, some practical takeaways for trying to set your uh, circadian rhythm for things like being a shift worker. So um, what would I suggest for you? He doesn't really have a preference on his shifting sleep schedule. So I would suggest trying to maintain as much of a normal-ish sleep schedule as you can. So the things that I would do in terms of um, trying to maintain uh, good sleep, I would try to maintain the same um, light exposure habits leading up to bedtime and leading to when you wake up. Those two things I think you should focus on. So basically what I mean is when you finish your shift, regardless of what time it is, or like, let me think how to phrase this actually. Um, let's go with like the 5 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Okay, so you're probably not gonna sleep right away. You'll probably have to go to bed early those nights to wake up at 5 a.m. and be rested. So you might you know, sleep at 8 p.m. So what I mean is um, the hours leading up to bed, an hour or two or three, you should have the same nighttime bedtime routine uh, regardless of when your schedule is, of when you actually wake up. So light exposure is really important. Light exposure, probably the best thing to do is wake up. When you wake up, get as much bright daylight exposure as you can, whatever's practical. Go brush your teeth by a window. Um, go outside, like first thing you do, go outside, walk your dog or, or go for a quick walk around the block or um, drink your coffee outside, have breakfast at a window and stare outside. Those types of very simple things to try to increase your light exposure from when you wake up. Before bed, same thing, but the opposite. Go to bed, I mean, um, get things dark before you go to bed, have the same routine where like um, you have dinner and then you take a shower and you brush your teeth and you like read a book and then you go pass out, something like that. Uh, the main things are get it dark, whatever's practical for darkness. And so I think like getting um, getting blackout curtains and using as minimal lights, even though it's, it's summer right now, right? It's June. Uh, in fact, the summer solstice is happening like tomorrow, I think. So like this is like peak summer where we get the most daylight. Um, trying to black out as much as you can prior to bed to simulate darkness and get as minimal lighting on as you can to function, to have your dinner, that's going to help solidify your bedtime routine and your light exposure to help uh, get you a better sleep. Also, of course, the blue light exposure is important too. So I would try to reduce blue light, but I think simulating darkness is more practical than trying to blue light block everything. However, exclamation mark health, go to tominationtime.com slash health. I have a link to some cheap $10 blue light blocking glasses that are very very, very strong for blocking blue light. They're not very comfortable or fashionable. They're kind of ugly, but it works. So like wearing those an hour or two before bed, along with the darkness, you know, keep make it so you still function and do things, but that these are the things that would apply. So if you're, if you want, if you're trying to sleep by eight, 8 PM, let's say, um, 6 p.m., I would start trying to darken as much of the house as you can, get the lights dim, put on the blue light blocking glasses, and avoid stimulation too. I would not play super adrenaline pumping games before bed. I would not be playing something crazy, uh, crazy exciting like a, um, a MOBA game or a, um, a uh, battle royale game or anything that gets your blood pumping. Stick to low stimulation, boring stuff. So um, if you play, I mean, it'd be better to not play games unless you can play like Go or chess or something. But anything, just think if it's stimulating you or not. You want to choose boring activities. So even books, um, even though there's no light exposure coming from a book, those can be very stimulating. Um, I remember The Name of the Wind. It's a great fantasy book. Fantastic. Like when I read that book, I was so like there's, there's a big event that happens, a big WTF event that happens like a quarter way through the book. After that, I was like, oh my God, I am hooked. I could not stop reading until 4 a.m. Even then, at 4 a.m., I passed out from exhaustion, not because my brain was tired. I passed out because my body was just so physically tired from like reading because it was so exciting. So my point is, 
a lot of people give the advice of like, oh, don't don't use your device. You should instead, uh, you know, read a book. Okay, it's better to say avoid stimulation and choose um, the most low tech stuff that you can do. That being said, I personally will still read stuff. I'll read very boring, dry scientific articles on my phone on a very, very dim light. I get a screen filter app to make it even darker. And I read that to bed and it's boring. And I fucking pass out. It's great. So uh, those are some of the tips that I would say. So the same thing applies for like if you're working from 2.30 to 11 p.m. Um, leading up to bed, try, I mean, this to be kind of hard, but try to simulate the darkness the best you can prior to sleep. Um, and also like before going to bed, like you have the same routine of I'm going to eat and then I'm going to shower and then I'm going to uh, dim the lights. Now, there is a question here of for the 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 the. The shift where you end at uh, you start at 5 a.m. That means you have to go to bed pretty early, like 8 p.m., right? And now the next week, you're going to be going to bed at like midnight at the earliest, right? Because you get off at 11. So you might get home and, you know, eat, shower, whatever. So you might go to bed at midnight. So the question is, should you maintain the same routine of this two hour routine where you like eat dinner, shower, all this stuff, and then two hours later you go to sleep? Or should you just try to sleep as soon as you can so you're not shifting your sleep schedule so much from 8 p.m. to midnight or even 2 a.m.? That's up to you to decide on what's going to be the best. Um, if you should try to maintain the same routine or you should try to just shorten it and go to bed as soon as you can. My preference is I would try. I would I think you should try to go to bed as soon as you can on the 11 p.m. shift to keep it as close to a normalish bedtime of like 10 ish or 10 p.m. or something. So. Uh, I think that'd be helpful. A couple, yeah, trial and error. See what works better for you. I think also melatonin would probably help you here. Melatonin supplements, exclamation mark, melatonin. Um, uh, don't superdose your melatonin. The doctor who discovered melatonin uh, just explains it in an article. Um, it's uh, just look up uh, healthydirections.com, making sense of melatonin dosing. Uh, he basically says almost nobody should be consuming over one milligram of melatonin unless you have a very specific need. Go for the lowest effective dose. I'm a big fan of exclamation mark Legion hashtag sponsored their lunar supplement, I think, is actually really good for this. They um, they put a low dose of melatonin, I think like half a milligram. Um, and I take that if, I, if I'm going to go to bed really early, I will take that. So um, that is uh, that is what I personally do anyway. So um he says, luckily, I usually am pretty tired and fall asleep around 1230. Okay, so that works, but you might need to sleep at like 8 p.m. sometimes, right? So do keep that in mind, right? This is gonna be some trial and error to figure out what's the best. I think black uh, blackout curtains will help control this stuff. Maybe even a sleep mask, depending on how dark your room can get. Being Stanley asks, is it possible to fix anterior pelvic tilt or APT with exercises like deadlift squats and standard gym work? Or would I have to find more specific exercises. Um, I'll give a couple of quick answers, which is yes, standard um, gym work and deadlifts and squats could help correct that. It may not. Uh, you probably would need more specific exercises to be safe. I mean, you could just try it and then see if things are getting better or getting worse. If things are trending worse, then I would definitely stop and see a clinician or try doing some specific exercises to correct APT. However, I was asking Stanley, why does he think he has APT? And he says he used to have some low back pain, like a, a typical dull ache. Um, and he uh, never got diagnosed with it. He just has some pictures, which we're going to pull up in a second. And, and just to clarify what APT is, uh, let's just define it really quick. There's APT, anterior pelvic tilt. So look at my pelvis. If I have Donald Duck, but I rotate it like this, I have an extreme lordotic curve or just a very, very deep low back curve inward. That's that's APT. This is more neutral, which, by the way, a neutral spine has some curvature. And then posterior pelvic tilt, my pelvis, look at my pelvis, it is rotating this way versus this way, right? This is anterior pelvic tilt, neutral, posterior pelvic tilt. And then the low back and the rest of the spine changes shape as well. The low back kind of rounds and it becomes kind of flat or curved outward, which is the wrong way. So <laughs> neutral would be ideal and best. Um, but the reason why I ask, why does he think he has APT, um, is because a lot of times people just assume they'll start Googling like, oh, I have, I have, um, oh, low back pain. Oh, okay. Low back pain. What causes low back pain? Oh, APT. People have APT. They have a curve in the spine. I have a curve in the spine. And then it says people who sit for long hours. I sit for long hours. So it's very easy to find, um, something like that, that kind of, uh, matches what they think is, uh, going off their symptoms. It could be, it could be for sure. I think looking up on the internet can be a helpful way to kind of figure out a direction to go. But that being said, some, there's some nuance that gets left out, which is, 
a lot of the population has like by the definition of APT, they'll have some kind of APT or anterior pelvic tilt. And if you listen to spine experts like Dr. Stuart McGill, he often will talk about how um, depending on what their ethnicity is, you're going to see different curvatures in the spine where Asians, East Asians tend to have flatter spines by uh, by genetically. Anatomically, they just have a, a flatter spine versus those of Western European descent are going to have or just European descent have uh, deeper curvatures to their spine. So anatomically, just people, everyone's built differently. The better question to ask is, is it causing a problem for you? Is the APT causing a problem for you? And for that, I have not gotten a convincing answer that the APT is causing his low back pain. So for back pain, um, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Stuart McGill. Uh, I spent 10 years, like pretty much all my 20s, going on and off through extreme back pain to where I could barely walk, could squat and lift. No, couldn't do anything. I had to crawl to the bathroom in the middle of the night sometimes because of how much pain I was in. And uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, he has a book called Back Mechanic, a simple, uh, I think, very good diagnostic book to kind of walk you through a ton of different postures and movements to see what's really causing your issues. Because maybe it's an APT thing. Maybe it's just how you're sitting. And I do ergonomic reviews on the channel. So for free. So we can talk about that. If you, Stanley, if you want to come back in another time, um, exclamation mark ergo, type that on the Twitch chat and you can uh, see what kind of information I need to do a proper review. Uh, we also have a playlist of different ergo reviews I've done for other people. Pains is one of them, if Pains is still here. Um, he was also suffering from uh, tennis elbow or lateral apicondylitis. Um, saw a, a very low hanging fruit issue in his posture at his desk. Like there's your problem. He fixed it all gone. Now, um, for the APT stuff, let's take a look. So this is, uh, Stanley. Yeah. Pains is here and he says it helps. Uh, so this is Stanley. All right. Yep. There is some curvature here, which by the way, again, everyone's kind of different in terms of what the curvature could be. I also want to point out, this is a, also a slightly awkward picture because one, you're standing on probably what looks like the bathtub edge, which could be unstable and difficult to, to stand on. It may be an unnatural position, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, and also you're having to rotate a little bit, which, but again, you have, you have like a curve here. That doesn't necessarily mean to me that's a problem yet. And then asked, I wanted to see how he sits. Now this is um, not his typical chair. This is a dining room chair and the chair can make a huge difference. But um, the, the, the way he's sitting here is more of a posterior pelvic tilt type slouch. So I'm not convinced that his APT is causing a problem. If he walked around with Donald Duck butt and he had some sharp pains while squatting and when I saw him squat, he was exhibiting stripper butt to where he was like trying to stay way too upright and his pelvis is trying to compensate and going to extreme APT and he had sharp pain from that. Then I would say, yep, you know what? You might have APT. Let's cool it. Let's change your squat form and let's address the symptoms that are causing these issues. But so far it's just sitting and I'm not convinced that it's an APT thing, especially with no actual official diagnosis. I asked him to show me where does he sit all day? Show me what you sit in. And uh, he said the chairs are kind of like this, typical uni chairs. So um, library chairs and whatnot. Now, although it's hard to see in these chairs, these types of chairs generally do not have a lumbar support. They typically have a flat-ish support with a slight angle back. So let me show a, a chair. This chair right here is kind of like a typical uni chair, right? Or this is actually a church chair. I got this my old church. They're throwing them out. And they're actually, I love this chair. I got a whole bunch of them because they are so, back in the day where I could barely walk, this is one of the few chairs that I could sit in and be relatively pain-free. But it still has a problem. What's that problem? It's a flat back. It does not have a... Uh, uh, lumbar support to dig in to my uh, the lumbar curvature here. So when I sit back against it, what's my back doing? My back has rounded. It is slouched. Right? You see that? Let me sit over here on the bench so it's a little more obvious. Instead of sitting with a neutral curve in my low back, which you can see right here, right? I have a low back curvature inward, slight outward curvature in my spine, inward curvature of the neck. Instead, when I sit on that chair, my back rounds. And this is not neutral. And this is the first place I would look for your low back pain for sitting for long periods of time. Um, so that being said, Stanley, you're having low back pain on and off. The first thing I would look at is, okay, so I, I, I haven't heard anything about your lifts 
having pain during the lifts. Uh, and I'll also have to see her form. It just heard of just generic, non-specific back pain when you're, uh, you know, just doing everyday stuff. And I see the chairs that you're sitting in. I see your your uh, natural posture here while sitting in is the opposite of APT. It's PPT, right? Your pelvis is kind of slouching forward. You have a flat back, possibly rounded. Um, it's a bit hard to see, but that is my first go-to about this. So would generic exercises like deadlifts and squats and generic gym work help this? I think so. If you um, train yourself to have a neutral spine when deadlifting, this will help carry over for you to have a neutral posture while sitting. Not guaranteed, of course, but for in my experience, it helped me. Uh, I had the same issue where I would I tended to um, go towards a slouched posture, posterior pelvic tilt type posture, rounded lower back like this. Um, that was a huge source of my back problems. Learning how to deadlift properly once the pain came down, obviously, um, when I was excruciating pain, all exercise is a bad idea. Just got to let it, you know, let that cool off until I can start exercising pain free. Then when I was a bit pain-free, deadlifting properly taught me how to have a neutral spine. It's a little bit hard here um, with all the stuff in the way, but basically being able to pick stuff off the ground with a neutral spine so that I wasn't rounding my back that helped teach me how to set my hips throughout a deadlift. Now, Stanley says the back pain has only come back from being so inactive during lockdown. When I was lifting, back pain wasn't really a problem at all. So is the problem that you weren't lifting? Is the problem that you're spending so much time sitting? How's the chair? These are the kinds of things I would pay attention to because um, it, it may be that you lost that one hour in the gym of lifting. It could be that you're spending an additional 10 hours in poor posture with a poor chair, such as the one here. Um, exclamation mark back pain. You can see a video on my channel um, in Twitch where I, I demonstrate how to use a lumbar support properly, how to get that to, you got to wedge it in there. So that way your low back kind of has that natural curvature. Find something that's pain-free. Like obviously it's gonna take some time to kind of uh, suss out what's the right, what's the right um, sized lumbar support and location that you need. But the point is when you're sitting in a chair, if you're doing it properly, you should feel in a relatively close to neutrals, I mean, go as close to neutral as you can, uh, posture where you feel relaxed and supported. I'm also against the medicine ball type chairs where you have to like sit upright for hours. Um, I get asked some nuance there. If you're doing, if you're doing a medicine ball or I mean not medicine ball, a yoga ball, Swiss ball, whatever you call them. Um, if you're sitting on those balls for like a little bit of time, like 10 minutes, half an hour, that's, that's probably okay. But if you're sitting on for hours, no, I don't agree with that at all. I think people should be, if you're going to be in a single position for hours, which probably you shouldn't be get up and move around. But if you have to be in a single position for hours, I strongly recommend you find an ergonomic positioning or ergonomic position where you are in neutral and you are supported and you feel relaxed. You don't feel like you have to tighten your core for hours and hours and hours. Tighten your core for the list. Don't tighten your core 24 seven. I think that's, I think that's a, I think that's a big health media mistake that is being pushed right now. The narrative is like, Oh, tight core, tight core, bro. You got to have a tight core all the time. Tight core, tighten that core, tighten that core all the time. Tight core. It's always tight core. Um, and that's a huge mistake. Ruger says I recently got tennis elbow which has pretty much halted any upper body work. Do you know the best way to fix it? Google seems to be everywhere from working it out, stretching it to taking medicine. So I, I then asked, why does he think he has tennis elbow? We asked, I asked him, where does it hurt? So on the distal side of the elbow, so there's, there's the proximal side and distal side, or basically below the elbow, further away from your body, this is distal, or on the forearm, humerus to be proximal or just closer to your torso. So four common places for elbow pain. Here on the forearm side, distal side, forearm pain on the muscle here, forearm pain close to the elbow here, but like on the underside of your, of your forearm, bicep pain where the tendons insert into the elbow and tricep pain where the tricep, where the, the tendons insert into the elbow here, tricep tendonitis. And I asked him, his pain was here on the tricep side where it inserts into the elbow. This is not tennis elbow. Tennis elbow and golfer's elbow exists on the forearm where lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow here, or really just any kind of extensor movement uh, and say, or um, extensor like overworked, overwork and strain, and then flexor movement down here for the golfer's elbow. It is so much sexier to Google for something like 
um, something like tennis elbow, like, oh man, it's the tennis elbow. That's what it was. Or the golfer's elbow, because it's so easy to say that. Or gamer's elbow, d- you know, working too hard elbow. This elbow, oh, dude, that sounds so much better. That's exactly what it is. It is so easy to Google for that. It is much harder to find an answer for something unsexy like tricep tendonitis, which it sounds like that's what his problem is. It is on the tricep tendons, on the proximal side, on the humerus, where it inserts into the elbow. Not um, tennis elbow. So we sussed that out earlier in our discussion. So he, um, he might've gotten it from working out. He also, uh, uh, works as a programmer. So he's at the computer very often. I asked him about his, uh, posture for the elbow when he's typing and when he's typing, it is less than 90 degrees. So instead of the elbow angle at the keyboard, instead of being 90 degrees or greater than 90 degrees is less than 90. That's another problem. Red flag right there. Um, and also for his workout, he's doing, uh, curls, bench press, tricep extensions, lateral raises, pretty basic stuff. And I asked him about the tricep extensions. How is he doing the tricep extensions when he does them? Where does he reset or what's the start position for his elbows? So when you're doing tricep extensions, like you're just basically, you have a, you know, a cable and you're just, you're pushing down like this. I asked him elbow angle. What is it? He starts not at 90 degrees, but high up close to like 45 or 30 degrees. And then he pushes down from here. So All of these are red flags for tricep tendonitis. Your problem, sir, is you are putting too much strain on your your, your tricep tendons by having uh, the elbow angle being less than 90 degrees chronically for too long at your desk. So this can be, if you're typing at a desk, you should aim for 90 degrees or slightly greater, not less than 90 degrees. That's going to put some constant strain on your tricep tendon. Plus, or or same thing with um, T-Rex arms on the uh, cell phone. Same thing, having a tight elbow angle here is also going to uh, irritate the tricep tendon. Like you can do one of these things and it might be okay, but he's piling all of this on with other things like he's lifting and he's putting a lot of strain on his tricep tendons by going all the way to the top when he is doing his tricep extensions. Start lower at like 90 degrees. First of all, let the tricep tendon calm down. So you need to probably cut a lot of your tricep work, do some massage, do whatever feels good. There's all kinds of random stuff you can do. Foam roll it, scrape it, I don't care. Do whatever you wanna do to make it feel better. Just cut down the volume and keep your elbows open for the most part. When you're typing, do what you gotta do to get your elbows 90 degrees or greater for the time being to let this calm down. Once it calms down, all your tricep work, that's um, tricep isolation work, don't go for like the super tight angle up here that's heavily loaded. If you wanna do this, uh, if you wanna go all the way up here, then you should probably just go lower, lower in weight um, is what I meant. So uh, Ruger, that sounds like where all your problems are coming from. I know this because I went through the exact same problem where basically I had chronic uh, tendonitis building up in my elbow. It kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, And then it was basically all these things relating to my elbow angle being too tight for too long under too much load, right? Um, Obviously, if I'm going to uh, just do a single tricep extension, if I do a single tricep extension at 10 pounds, I can do that, no problem, no injury. But if I were to do 20 sets of that to failure at 20 reps at 100 pounds, that is an incredibly high load, I'm doing a lot of it. I'm doing it all the time throughout the week. And on top of that, if I'm at my desk, right? If I just have a a type with T-Rex arms for five minutes, I'll be fine. If I type with T-Rex arms for eight hours a day for five days a week, doing a full-time job, that's going to start becoming a problem. And you combine all these together, you might get something like a chronic tendonitis pain that is not going away because you got to fix the source. Let it calm down and fix the source, Ruger. Hope that helps. If this podcast earned it, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. We're new to the podcast space and we will be reading all the feedback. Also, if you like the content, follow us on twitch.tv slash time and keep notifications on for when we go live. Feed your brain, feed your body, and we'll see you next time.